Okay. I'm Lori Campbell. Good morning, Christ Community Church. I get the privilege of reading a beautiful psalm, number eight. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your, <clears throat> excuse me, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with, <laughs> with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
Today we begin a new series on the Psalms. Um, So I, I begin by asking a question. Have you ever felt insignificant or small or completely unnoticed or almost invisible or lost in the crowd? I would imagine your answer would be yes. But here's another question. Have you ever felt really important? I mean, felt special, selected, acknowledged. I would imagine most of you would remember a time where you felt that way. Special, selected, acknowledged. I remember growing up as a kid playing basketball, and uh, all of a sudden, one day when we were picking our teams, I was chosen first. And I thought, oh, something just happened, right? I felt special. So you've probably experienced feeling invisible and insignificant. You've probably also experienced feeling selected, special, or chosen. But have you experienced both and then experienced a corrective or a balance? It seems like Psalm 8 does that for us. It makes us feel both, and it gives us a corrective or a balance. So let's consider the psalm for a moment. It begins as it ends, suggesting that God is majestic. And the majesty of God is displayed in the grandeur of the universe. I love the way the author puts it which we believe probably was David. The author makes it as though God is an artist, finger painting, shall we say, the universe. The heavens declare your glory, the works of your finger. Imagine all the stars in the universe and the galaxies that are yet to be discovered the work of his finger. The stars and the moon that you set in place, like we set pieces of a puzzle in place. So what's interesting about this description is that all of this glory, which even that glory, the universe itself, is quite incomprehensible to us. In spite of that grandeur and mystery and glory, God is above it all. So imagine the greatest, the biggest, the most awesome. It's only a tiny reflection of God, the author or the finger painter of all that. Then the... um, 
the author of the psalm goes on to say, when, when I consider that, I feel really small. I feel tiny. I feel, well, insignificant. I, I ask again if you've ever had this experience, and I, and I would imagine most of you have. Laying on your back or sitting in a chair or maybe even a particular view out your window on a very clear night and you just see the array of stars. Like you don't ordinarily see them. For whatever reason, the clarity is just perfect. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but I've experienced it. Laying on my back and looking at the stars and feeling tiny, like a bug. Why do I feel so tiny? Because it's so grand. Why do I feel so tiny? Because I realize that I am one of the billion people who might be looking at the same constellations and I feel tiny. Why do I feel tiny? Because I realized that Abraham looked at the same stars and everybody before him and everyone after him and that history has marched on and on in time and we consider ourselves to be grand. The Roman Empire, the United States of America, Great Britain, on and on and on. And the stars, they're up there looking down on it all. The same constellations that Napoleon looked at, and now he's gone, and so is his influence, are up there. Should make you feel small, shouldn't it? Because you are small. And then the psalmist gives us amazing Word. It's a conjunction. He says all that, and then he says, yet. Or let me put it in the way that we might write it, but. The heavens are unbelievably glorious, and you're over all the heavens. And when I consider that, I feel like less than an ant, but. But. In spite of your smallness, you, not just you as a group, okay, you as an individual, in spite of your smallness, you've been placed just a little lower than the heavenly beings. It's almost as though God is saying to me when I'm laying, in that field, looking at the stars and feeling absolutely insignificant. Bob, it's time for you to get up. Don't stay in your insignificance forever. I want you to get up because I've made you a little lower than the heavenly beings, which are above the heavens as well. And as a matter of fact, I've crowned you with honor and glory. I've never worn a crown. I don't think I've even done it for a costume. I've worn cowboy hats for costumes, but not crowns. But crowns are a sign of royalty. That's the first thing we think of. But also they're a sign of dignity or an honor bestowed. So even if you weren't a king in an ancient culture, you may be crowned with a wreath 
Maybe because you're an athlete in the Olympic Games, or maybe because you're being called out in community and noted for something. God says, I've crowned you with glory. I put a garland on your head. When, when we hear that language, we can't help but think of the account of creation in Genesis. Human beings come at the end. And you might consider us to be the caboose when you think of the chronology. But the reality is when you look at the text, everything step by step is leading to the highest order of creation, which is human. Everything points to it. And God says, that's who you are. And because that's who you are, you are a reflection of my image. Do you, do you, well, maybe you don't. If you haven't studied the history of religions, you might forget or have never heard how dramatically different this is than the rest of the history of religions. Because there's a whole bunch of creation narratives, some of which are quite similar to the creation narrative we hold in our Old Testament book of Genesis. But some of the creation narratives, by the way, most of them come out of the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian region where we think of as the, uh, as the Garden of Eden. Those Mesopotamian creation narratives include a variety of things. But one thing they do not require, include is humanity as a reflected image of God. As a matter of fact, um, one of the Mesopotamian creation narratives has the young gods angry with the older ruling gods because the young gods are given the responsibility to dig the Tigris and Euphrates River. And you guessed it. The young gods decide they'll fix that problem so they bring humans in. In other words, the Mesopotamian creation narratives frequently refer to the gods as being there so that the human beings can serve them, do their dirty work, shall we say. And the gods are warring against each other. Contrast that to this, this personal statement concerning you from God Almighty. I created you just a little lower than the heavenly beings, and I've crowned you with honor and glory. Everything is under your feet. All the works of my hands, I've given you the responsibility to rule over. Talk about exalting humanity. You've been placed, says God, in the role of a ruler over creation. And one of the worst interpretations of that statement is creation's using creation being used and abused by ruler humans. Nothing could be further from God's mandate for his creatures, namely human creatures, than that. God, in effect, says, I have given you my image, and you're expected to reflect my character. 
And among other things, the character of God is to love his created order. It is to care for his created order. It's throughout the Psalms and especially other parts of the Old Testament. God is the caretaker of this universe. He gives specific directions about how we are supposed to treat animals and treat our fields in terms of crop rotations. And a rather explicit description of our role as rulers. We have morphed into understanding our role as rulers as an iron scepter. We smash creation and we put it into our own purposes. We have become consumers rather than caretakers. God says, I've given you this glory so that as vice regents, as governors of me, you can display my glory and my creative caretaking of the earth that you live in. You know, some people get frustrated when I talk about creation care. Um, I understand that. Because it's a, a topic that is fraught with political ideology. But surely, surely, my friends, we can agree to this. In spite of various differences, surely we can agree to this. God has given us the responsibility to care for this earth, not to consume it. So what does that mean? It might mean something a little different for you than it does for me. But it's clear that this earth was given to us by God. It starts in a garden and it needs to be cared for. What does that look like for Christians? That's the uh, $600,000 question, isn't it? How? What do we do? Let's just start with the responsibility and redirect our ideas concerning who we are. The psalm closes out the way it began, concerning the majesty of God. When I consider you, God, I'm overwhelmed by your majesty. When I consider you, I'm overwhelmed and think myself insignificant. But when I consider you, I know I'm made in your image. When I consider you, I realize that you're the sovereign over all creation. The grandeur that dwarfs, dwarfs me is your finger painting. So what does our response or should our response be in light of what God has said about us? Uh, first, I think it, it's to stand in awe. It's like Isaiah 6, who's trembling in the presence of God. I mean, if you had the ability to get close enough to a star, you would be consumed by it. It's that kind of awe that Isaiah seems to have experienced in the temple. I'm a dead man because I've seen the glory of God. It is so bright and so beautiful and so overwhelming. I'm in trouble. 
Of course, the beauty of it is that the angel takes with tongs from the altar a coal and puts it on his tongue and says, your sins are forgiven. In other words, stand up and be the image of God. So our response should be absolute awe and wonder. I think our response also ought to be humility and not pride. There's nothing more repulsive than someone who's who's been given a great honor and they become self-saturated and prideful about the honor instead of being a great servant with the honor. So it ought to affect us not pridefully but in humility. And we ought to remind ourselves of what the psalm says. The psalm says, out of the lips of children, you've ordained your praise to silence your enemies. And as a matter of fact, in the narrative, going into the temple, and as he's clearing out the temple money changers, following his entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Matthew tells us this, that he quotes this very verse. When criticized concerning the praise that's been given to him, he says, What, have you forgotten Psalm 8? From the lips of children, he's ordained praise to silence his enemies. It already happened on the way in. It's happening all the time. That's why you shouldn't despise the small things, the little things, the children. Be humble. We ought to be humble because we're called in spite of our sins. Not because we're sinless. We're not angelic beings who are in the presence of God constantly and do the service of God constantly without sin. We are sinful human beings. And it doesn't matter. Does that sound over the top? Well, I'm glad it does because that's what I mean. Yes, you're sinful and I'm sinful. And in God's economy, it doesn't matter matter because he's chosen us to be the image of God so get busy with the activity of being the image of God even though you are sinful that's the beauty of grace it should spark in us great awe it should bring to us humility and not pride It should remind us that we're governors and not kings. You see, our authority, however you want to define it, is a derivative authority. We've been given the responsibility to represent God. We don't do things on our own. We do it as a reflected image of God himself. And if we go off the rails, we're no longer representing God, the image of God. Our authority is not our own. We're not autonomous. We're in the service of God, the king of the universe. Final thing I'll say about this notion that we are crowned with glory because we are the image of God. We must always remember that the image of God is filled with great diversity. Great diversity. Paul says in Galatians, male and female, young and old, slave and free, 
rich and poor. These are not Paul's words, but I'll introduce them as an extension of Paul's thinking. The diversity is seen among us and those who are logical and those who are intuitive. I um, periodically in a sermon will use a poem to illustrate a point. So full confession, I don't read poetry. The only reason I ever give you a poem is because I happen to see it in a commentary or somewhere else in a book. And somebody already made the application for me. Because I can mess up poetry faster than a dog can mess up the backyard. I can't read it right. I can't understand it well. I'm telling you, I can't. But there's the beauty of it. There are poets. And they understand a language that I can't seem to tap into. There are poets and they have beautiful phrases that help me understand. Once I read it 15 times. There are musicians who raise me to the level of the glory of God. And and I don't just mean the musicians that are on this stage. Secular musicians can do the same. Because we are stamped with the image of God. Um, a few weeks ago, we had some folks over, and um, sorry, Armon, I'm going to mention it. So Armon, he, he's our drummer this morning, sitting all the way at the back. Now he doesn't want to come up for the final song, but um, having dinner, and uh, I started asking questions about music and a percussionist and everything, and and he told me uh, real early on, he started playing in church early on. He said, early on, I began to realize how important it was to watch the feet of the worship director. How many of you thought Armon was watching Adam's feet, right? I bet you nobody did. You might have been watching Adam's feet. Armon is watching Adam's feet because he's synchronizing everything together. I don't think anybody at school instructed him to watch the feet of the other who's leading. Maybe they did, but I know he can see it. He knows it's there. And he steps into it. I need to be able to step into your giftedness in order to understand God deeply. I need your expressive way, your ecstatic way, your curmudgeonly way, (laughs) your intellectual way. I need it all. Because it's, it's the image of God. So when you want to be annoyed by that person next to you, please stop. Please stop. And look for the image of God. And see what you might be able to learn about God. Because his image is stamped in every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that the psalmist um, didn't just say how majestic you were and uh, use a few more phrases to say the same thing.
He said you were majestic, and then he told us who we were in light of your majesty. And then, because he wants us to remember, he reminded us at the end about how majestic you were. It reminds us that we are in the center of the reality that you have made. It reminds us that our identity, when fully realized, is in you. It reminds us that that majestic God has demonstrated his glory among all these people. Help us, Lord, to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it and to worship you for it. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.